Cheers, Phil. Two. Your Bible's open at 1111 and 1112. And let me pray. Get the clicker. It's just behind that. Let me pray. Father God, thank you so much for time together to look at what you have to say to us in your word. Lord, help us today to uh, see afresh wonders in the gospel, to delight afresh in you and what you've done, and to let it affect us, not just our heads, not just to learn something new maybe, but to really affect our our lives, what we feel, uh, what we love, and what we're going to do off the back of that, Lord. So, Help us now by your spirit. We need your help in all things, and especially in this now, we pray. Amen. What is it like to really be a Christian, to live as a Christian in practice? If you're a visitor here today or, or maybe just exploring Christianity for the first sort of time, you may think of some of the sort of caricatures which our TV, family, uh, TV families, TV programs or films paint. You may think they're realistic. You've got the, the sort of pious Christian, lots of outward displays of religiosity, maybe come across a bit holier than now, maybe judgmental, all about fierce moral laws, a religion that seems to have no sympathy for the actual needs of those who live in this world. Maybe you've got the wet version, probably maybe all familiar with that one, the person all about love and peace, but maybe pretty ineffective when it comes to any definition about how we live out our faith in the workplace. Face any questions, maybe just smile and nod. Got the deluded Christian, seem completely oblivious to the world and what's going on, triumphant in the face of disease, disaster, or death. No real grounding in reality, no ability to deal with any suffering. Maybe you've got the antagonistic Christian, fights on social media the whole time, happy to wage an argument but intolerant of listening to anyone else. Now, you may think if you're looking in and if you become a believer, do I need to adopt one of those stereotypes, one of those stances? Maybe you're a Christian here and the Christian life isn't quite working out how you expected it to. Is it really about power? Is it about pain? Is it about sort of pretense, putting on a front? What is it really like to live as a Christian? Well, when we come to this passage, there are a few things we could focus on. But we're going to specifically focus on the characters here of Paul and Silas and Luke when he joins them. And how they responded, how they lived as Christians in the face of real frustration, real disappointment and utter chaos. And we're going to see how the gospel continues to spread. It continues here to plant a small church in a new place. We're going to see how God saves people from all backgrounds. So rich, rich religious woman, a poor possessed slave girl, a violent, aggressive jailer. We're going to be reminded and encouraged the gospel is for all. But we're going to see a glimpse of what the Christian life is like, I hope, as we see Paul, Silas, Luke and others live as they go with the gospel into the world. Because, I don't know about you, but if we look on the world with any sort of reality, if we look both out there at the world and in here ourselves at our lives, we know it often seems to be filled with frustration, disappointment and chaos. How is a Christian to live in that? Well, I think we can learn a lot as we look at these guys here. So, Uh, Let's look in, as I said, keep it open. We're going to take our story in three parts in Acts 16. Firstly, we're going to see coping with frustration. That's page 111. Uh, Let's look at this map. It's a bit blurry, but you'll get there. 
Um, so this is Paul's second missionary journey. And what's happened initially is uh, he revisits some of the places from his first journey. He goes to Tarsus, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch. similar places from his first journey. But as we saw, as we read here, in the first thing, they're then kept by the Holy Spirit from going to where they wanted to. Uh, it feels, when you read commentaries, the obvious thing was them to come down here or go up here. And we see they went, ended up in Mysia and then tried to go up here into Bithynia. They tried to continue to go into Asia. But they're prevented again. They keep getting prevented from where they want to go. The gospel was continuing to spread. It was spreading, as we read in our memory verse, from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. That's our key verse. And we're told that the Holy Spirit would go with them. And so we imagine they'd just go with them wherever they wanted to go. But no, the Holy Spirit had exactly where he wanted them to go. And, and so you'd imagine they'd be quite frustrated as they were prevented again and again from going to where they wanted to go. Now, they knew that where they planned to go, they would preach the gospel. They didn't need any specific guidance about preaching the gospel. It's the duty of every single believer to preach the gospel where they are and wherever they go. They didn't need any specific guidance about that. If you're a believer, you don't need any specific guidance about whether you should or should not tell others about the good news of Jesus. But where do they do it? That seems to be what they're seeking guidance from. Everywhere they tried, they were blocked, we see here. It's interesting, we're not told how the Holy Spirit guided them. It could have been giving them as a group a sort of strong inward impression, or it, it could have been through some outward circumstances, maybe illness or Jewish opposition, maybe a legal ban. But we get here two sort of negative prohibitions first, two places they're blocked, they're prevented. And then we get some positive guidance here with Paul's vision of the man of Macedonia. Is a vision of the man of Macedonia. Macedonia's over here. There you go, see what I'm doing. And that's in modern day Europe. And so in verse 10, we then see the group head there. And it's probably helpful to say maybe this type of experience has been fairly normative when you look at Christian missionaries over the years, when you read some of the great stories of people who've gone and pioneered to different areas. David Livingston, he set his heart out on China, ended up in Africa. William Carey planned to go to the Polynesian Islands and Pacific, God settled him in India. Judson, the great Baptist missionary, wanted to go to India, but he got moved by God into Burma as the East India Company wouldn't let him work in India. It's really helpful just as we think that guidance is negative as well as positive. It's a slight sidebar, but I think it's helpful as we look at what it looks to live like a Christian. When it comes to seeking guidance in our lives, can we learn anything here? Maybe about where we might live or, or work as we've just seen. It's the, the duty, it's the, it's the calling as we live in response to the gospel for all of us to live and speak for Jesus wherever we go. So they're big decisions, where we're going to speak, where we're going to live, where we're going to work. A bit like these guys here, they were looking to plant churches. They were going with the gospel as we will go wherever we go. And we can see here that it seems to be that normative practice that God leads and directs us with a combination of factors over a period of time. And it does involve discussing it with others, prayerfully. I think it's rarely something that comes out of the blue or in a thought as we look at scripture. It's weighed together with brothers and sisters. It's cumulative. John Stott says this on this passage. He says, we can learn that God's guidance is usually not negative only, but also positive. Some doors open, some close. Uh, God's guidance is not circumstantial only, but also rational. We think about our situation. God's guidance is not personal only, but also corporate. It's a sharing of the data with others so that we can mull over them together and reach a common mind. So just as this little sidebar as we're in, I wonder a few things maybe for us at Town Church. Does this maybe seem quite foreign to us? 
In, in some ways it is. They're apostles and they're going to bring the gospel. But I think, again, we can learn. They have the Holy Spirit like we do. But maybe it seems foreign to us because we don't prayerfully think about major decisions. I know it's a challenge for me as I was reading through this. Do we just think ourselves at where we might live, what job we might do, whether to have more children, who to marry, whether to marry, whatever that decision might be, do we just maybe not bring it to God like we're told later in a different passage these guys would be doing? I mean, even if we do, do we then just make these decisions on our own? There's a challenge here for us to see if we're in danger of being really individualistic in our decision-making. You see, our culture, unlike the culture here, unlike other cultures, is so individualistic. What works for me? What works for my family? Those are normally the two main factors. They are for me often. Instead, here, we see a good lesson in corporate discussion, in seeking wise counsel, prayerfully weighing things up together. As Paul brings it to the people, and then they get ready at once to leave, they conclude together that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Maybe some food for thought as to how we operate as a church or as a family. But let's continue. Let's come back to the frustrations. And it must have been frustrating. Whatever frustrations Paul and his companions must have felt, they then drew a positive conclusion from them. Did you notice that? Verse 10. We, which shows that Luke, who's writing this, has now joined them, decided to head on to Macedonia. They've been blocked here. They've been blocked here. They want to preach the gospel. God, what are you doing? But then they concluded that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. That's a challenge. I wonder if you and I have learned to draw positives from frustrating circumstances in life. They didn't give up. They kept going. God uses them, uses those circumstances to get us to where he wants us to be. So once again, we're going to see it littered throughout this passage, a reminder of God's good sovereignty. But that's not the end of the frustrations as we move on from there. We move now uh, across the water into Philippi. They've got guidance on where to go next. They sail over the water. But then what faced Paul and his companions was quite disappointing. So it's our second point, dealing with disappointments. They arrive in Europe. They end up in Philippi. They stayed there a few days. Now, Paul's method in every single place he'd been to, and we see it in chapter 17, this pattern, is to head to the synagogue on the Sabbath and preach there first. Chapter 17 says this right at the start. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. But look down with me here, page 1112, verse 13. It says here, on the Sabbath, he went to the synagogue. No, on the Sabbath, he went outside the city gate to the river where he expected to find a place of prayer. What they found in the city of Philippi was disappointing. Not as expected. There was no synagogue, which means there were less than 10 male Jews in the city. So Paul had to shift his practice, he had to shift his method. So they headed to the river where they heard there was a place of prayer. And despite this setback, amazingly, we then see how God uses this, how God opened the eyes of one of the women, a lady there called Lydia, a powerful, rich, religious lady, we find out. And amazingly, this woman was from Thyatira. Thyatira is one of the cities they were prevented from going to before. They wanted to go to Thyatira. God said, no, moves them here. They find this rich, influential woman from Thyatira. Look then again at how Paul and his companions faced their, their disappointment, or at least their shifting circumstances. Unexpected circumstances. What do they do? Well, they just <coughs> took the next step. They just did the next thing they could do. They arrived at the city. Where's the synagogue? No synagogue. Okay. Well, we're going to head to the river. We know there's a place of prayer there. 
There's not many people there from the actual town, okay? But we'll share the gospel with who's in front of us. And once again, we're reminded that it is God who is sovereign and God who is in control of our circumstances, that it is God who is in charge of our evangelism, of our, our speaking of the good news. Verse 14 says this, as he spoke to these women, as he spoke to Lydia, the Lord opened her heart to respond to God's message. Friends, if we sit here and we trust in Jesus today, the only reason we do so is because God has opened your heart. We bring nothing. Ranks reminded of this last week. He gives everything. And we're encouraged here as we look at their practice to just keep taking the next step when circumstances are confusing for us, maybe or different to how we expected, to prayerfully keep taking the next step. I wonder what this could look like for you as you as you maybe face disappointment, as you go about living and relating to those around you, looking to bring the good news of Jesus with them. Just take the next step. At work this week, what might that look like? At school, with your neighbours, just take the next step. Trusting God is still in control. Let's continue in our story. I'll spend most of your time here. Things have been frustrating. They've been disappointing. And now they get a little bit crazy. They seem to get completely out of control. And now we see what it means to be trusting God when things are out of control. Let me read from verse 16. It says, Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were then met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for our owners by fortune telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. They stayed in the city. They brought the gospel to Lydia, a small little co-op of church is maybe starting here. And now they're being followed by a slave girl possessed by a spirit. wonder what's going on here. Well, we do need to acknowledge it seems weird, it seems foreign to us. We need to acknowledge there is a real spiritual world which is out to oppose the Christian faith. The Bible's really clear on that. But you may have looked at this account and gone, well, what's the problem? You see what she was saying? She was telling the truth. These men are servants of the Most High God. Yep, they are. Who are telling you the way to be saved. Yeah, that's great. Cheers. You may think back to a number of the accounts of the Gospels. The same thing goes on. Spirits speaking about Jesus and then Jesus rebuking them. So why is this demon, we say she's possessed in some way, why is this demon engaging in evangelism? Well, probably as we look at it, to discredit the Gospel by associating it in people's minds with the occult or the crazy. If the devil can't stop the Gospel being preached, he'll try and make it look ridiculous. And so... We see here, Paul, the group takes action. I love the human detail here as well. That's where I, I love in Scripture and we see these things. We've been doing it for three days. And you see Paul's patience. Then Paul became so annoyed. And so in the name of Jesus, Paul cast out the spirit. It's a lovely little detail. Just helps us see that, that Luke is there. He's witnessing this. This is history. Now we see the slave girl delivered. And, and you read around and you see, and I think it's implied by how this story comes after the salvation of Lydia, before the jailer, we're about to see, spoiler alert, is saved. That this slave girl also becomes part of the Philippian church. Slowly and surely, this church is growing. It's a random group of people, seemingly. And her owners are absolutely livid. They've lost a key source of their income. And this leads to some pretty unpleasant circumstances for Paul and his companions. Let me read again. Read down with me from verse 19. When her owners realised that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. 
They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Chaos. They've been arrested, flogged, beaten. They're now in stocks, put into an inner cell of a jail. I've not been in prison yet. It may come, it never has so far, but it's it's probably good to confirm that, isn't it? Um, But I can think two things. One, that it'd be really unpleasant. Two, it'd be very noisy. Let's stick on the unpleasant first. And I think it's good that maybe if you want with me in a minute, it may help to close your eyes to think this through. Imagine what it would have been like if a Paul and Silas and others, because it really will help us when we come to applying and seeing how we dealt with it. Fix something unpleasant first. This jailer didn't have to stick him in the inner cell. He didn't have to fasten their feet in the stocks. He was just told to guard them carefully. The inner jail in these sort of Roman sort of prisons was found in the centre of the prison. It was lower than the rest of the jail. That meant that all the human waste flowed downwards into it. That was the point of it. And the stocks, probably seen stocks, they would have meant they were forced to be in a completely sort of unnatural position. So they're uncomfortable and it's rancid. Then the noise. I don't know if you've ever seen a film or TV show set in a prison. The lights go out and the noise increases. Screaming, <coughs> shouting, swearing, banging. I wonder what you would do in that situation. What would I do in that situation? They've not done anything wrong. Yet here they are in the inner cell of a jail. And it's noisy. And it's stinking and they're uncomfortable. Put yourself in their shoes. Maybe imagine it now. It's dark. It's wet. Your feet are locked. It stinks. You're contorted uncomfortably. Noise is swirling around the cell. You're naked, flogged. There's a big burly guard with a rod standing just outside. You're hungry. You're broken. You're done. What would you do? Read verse 25 with me. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. Now, prayer makes sense, doesn't it? If you're a Christian, it makes sense here. Maybe some of you went, what would I do in this situation? Well, I'd pray. I'd cry out, Lord, why am I here? Lord, why is this happening? Lord, save me, maybe. Lord, this stink. Come on, Lord. Makes a lot of sense. But they don't just pray, do they? They pray and they sing. They worship God in the midst of this jail. They worship God in the midst of human excrement. Undeserved. Why? How? In all of Paul's imprisonments, and there are a few, Paul never calls himself a prisoner of Rome. Paul never calls himself a prisoner of the emperor. Paul never calls himself a prisoner of a government. He says three times, I'm a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostles, Paul here, he knew that God controlled their circumstances. He knew that he hadn't abandoned them. So they sang. They accepted their circumstances somehow. However frustrating, however disappointing, however chaotic, however awful, they managed to sing. This seems different to how you or I may handle the situation, maybe. Maybe not you, but it seems very different to how I would. 
Again, we've seen this pattern, these three different stories. It seems that they accept the circumstances and just take the next step. They're in jail. They can obviously maybe hear others around them. What are we going to do? Hold a prayer meeting. Makes sense. It's the next step. It's the only thing they could do. And God was with them in it. And we see that pattern throughout scripture. As they did this, they joined. This isn't an outlier. We're not meant to look at these guys and go, wow, they're incredible. Like they are, but they've got the same spirit we have. But they're in a, they're, they're throughout scripture, we see this. They join a great chorus of others in the Bible who sung by faith and not by sight. King Jehoshaphat walked into war with praises rising. Jeremiah gave his most bitter lamentation a tune. They joined the psalmist. Do you remember when we were in the psalms, we look at psalms of lament? Who through feeling afflicted and forgotten, they raise a song in the night. I'm not saying they're singing songs like, oh, how amazing God is. They're, they're singing like, blessed be your name. You know that song? It's, it's rich. It's deep, isn't it? Even when I'm found in the desert place. Some, we're going to sing later, he will hold me fast. It, it, it's, not, it's not blase. It's not ignorant circumstances. It's not kind of going, oh, well, everything's okay because I'm a Christian. It's going, this is real and this hurts and this is difficult. But I'm going to praise God because I trust him. Because he's good. From one perspective, their day had been absolute mayhem. Their spiritual power had been mocked. The gospel had been trampled by a mob. Their innocence had been silenced. They appeared like two victims in a merciless, purposeless world. But that wasn't their perspective. Years later, Paul writes this to the Philippian church. He speaks of God's surprising sovereignty in his imprisonment. I want you to know, brothers... That what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. And to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. See God had taught Paul and Silas to see his good purpose wherever they looked. Even when looked through the bars of the prison cell. And he taught them not just to see those purposes but to be able to sing of them. And he called us to do the same. One commentator writes on this he says this he says even apart from the words the very act of singing in sorrow recognize that singing in sorrow i'm not saying singing and just ignoring things singing in sorrow defies the unbelief that would see no meaning in such pain songs send rhythm and order harmony and progression into the suffering we do not yet understand and so they testify even in our deepest confusion that our god still reigns Now, if God reigns in this moment, we know he can deliver. No matter what prison they're in or how strong the chains are. And we see that then as we go on in verse 26. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake. The foundations of the prison were shaken. And at once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. But notice again, they were singing not after God sent the earthquake, but before. Because they placed their deep joy in God. They had sure and certain hope in the midst of circumstances. Paul again in Philippians writes this. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul knows God will deliver him whether by life or by death. But in his immediate suffering, it's striking what he prays for here, what he wants and prays for. And this is, he's 
may be reflecting on this, but he's imprisoned at this time in Philippians. It's later on. But in this suffering, he wants, he prays this one thing, not that he would initially be delivered from the situation. It's not his first prayer. But that he would be delivered from dishonouring Christ in his suffering. (coughs) Whether he was free or not, Paul was sure that by the Spirit's power, Christ will be honoured in my body. That is why he will rejoice and even sing. He knows he'll be delivered, whether by life or by death. That is a contentment and a trust in the Lord's sovereignty. It's incredible. It's striking. It's a challenge. I don't know half of what is going on in your lives. Not even half, let's even say that. 99%. But there'll be sorrow in this room. God can heal diseases. He can restore relationships. He can save loved ones. He can bury depression once and for all. He can, and we're really right to pray that he would. We know that he will in a new creation to come, even if not in this life. But we need something greater than just deliverance from our suffering, greater than just deliverance from our pain. Paul is challenging us here. We need deliverance from dishonouring God in our sorrows. In Christ, there is the deliverance we are promised here. In every awful circumstance, in every pain, we can sing of certain rescue and hope. We can sing of Christ. And one day we will sing to Jesus without any sorrow or any pain. Today we sing of his magnificence. We sing of his glory. We'll sing in a minute. In the midst of our sorrow and pain. In the new creation to come, we will sing without that. But notice would be now as we, we sort of draw in how this is a witness to those watching on. In verse 25, we're told the prisoners were listening to them. Maybe they listened with annoyance. I don't know if you saw that a clip going virally around of sort of Christians singing songs on a plane. As in it, it felt like people were trapped and listening to these Christians singing songs. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. So maybe they were listening with annoyance. Maybe surprise, maybe mocking, maybe wonder. How on earth can they sing? But they listened. And then we amazingly see someone joins their song. And it's the most unlikely of people. It's this jailer who we, we see went above and beyond his duty to punish these people. We don't know why. Uh, historically, the, the jailers in these sort of Roman sort of outlying towns would have been ex sort of military leaders. Not senior enough to stay in Rome, but moved out. So he was struggling with some form of anger, maybe sort of a, a form of post-traumatic stress disorder. They, they commentators seem to say there's something going on here. He completely goes above and beyond what he should. There's an anger there, seemingly. But then we see this. The jailer woke up. When he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword, was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's worth noting that point. We don't really know what he was asking by that question. What must I do to not be punished? What must I do? They answer, they take the opportunity, they do what the next best thing they can do. They say, we should be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. You and your household. Then what do they do? They take the next best thing. They spoke the word of the Lord and they explain it to him, to all the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds. Look at the transformation. Immediately he and all his household were baptised. Publicly and acknowledged their trust in Jesus. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He welcomes them. Look at the shift. He was filled with joy 
because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. The jailer heard and saw something completely different from his men. He would have spent years listening to cries and moans and abuse. But friends, how Christians handle suffering is a most powerful witness to the world. Some of you might know our chief executive at Christian Sports at the moment is currently going through treatment for cancer. I saw him on Friday and we, we spoke of how he's seeing this play out amongst his friends. How he's handling his suffering, not with ignorance, not ignoring the pain and the sadness that potential death brings, but with a realness and a sure and certain hope. It's having a significant impact on some of his friends. They, they don't get it in many ways, they don't understand it. It's having an impact on him as well. Amazing, he's able to say that he, what he's going through, his life has been stripped right back, his identity has been stripped right back. He said to me literally this, this has been a real precious time. It's a challenge, it's a real challenge for me to hear that. All by the grace of God, it's God at work in him. It's a challenge in how he handles suffering. And the jailer got this. He saw that these people marched to the beat of a different drum. Our friends, our families, our co-workers, our neighbours, our classmates will hear the difference between a grumble and a song between something, someone suffering and obsessed with themselves or someone who miraculously, and it is a miraculous work of the Spirit, lifts their voice to God and their hand to serve others in the midst of their suffering. Oh, how we may be a people like this. Oh, how the Spirit would, would work in our hearts to give us this sure and certain trust in God in the midst of difficult circumstances. And this wasn't just the experience of Paul and Silas. And the many generations of those who have suffered with song, it was the experience of Jesus. On the night of his betrayal, you may remember from our Easter series, after he'd broken bread and shared the cup, which we'll do together in a minute. After he'd washed his disciples' feet, he led the twelve in singing a hymn. He sang a melody on his most dark night. And he didn't stop singing then as the mob shouted to crucify him. Jesus bled psalms on the cross. Every word he spoke a psalm. Jesus, as we look to him, teaches us to say and sing with him as we suffer. To sing that our God reigns, that our God will deliver. As we'll sing in a minute, that he will hold us fast. Let me draw this in. Here is sort of the conclusion which I found as I've looked at Acts 16. We've seen amazingly how God begins to build this Philippian church. One which Paul goes on to speak of in such glowing terms later. From a a foreign woman, a slave girl and a jailer. That's not how Paul expected it to go. But God surpasses expectations. He builds and plants his church. The gospel brings all kinds of people to trust in Jesus. So if you're here and you, you think the gospel is not for you for some reason, it is. It's for all people, not just a certain type. As we look at Paul and Silas and Luke and the others, maybe here's a chance for you. The, the Christian life, I think, according to Acts 16, is about facing frustration, disappointment and circumstance outside of our control in a way that allows the God who is in control to work through us and them and show himself off to those watching on. Let me say that again. I think that's the, the heart of what I've been saying. The Christian life, according to Acts 16, is about facing frustration, disappointment and circumstances outside of our control in a way that allows the God who is in control to work through us and through them and show himself off to those watching on. This was the way of Jesus. 
The power of God is seen in weakness, not power. It's seen in suffering, not triumph. This was the way of the cross. Power through weakness, glory through suffering. And this is what the Christian life looks like. It's not ignorant. It's not blasé about suffering. It's real. It hurts. But it clings to Christ who suffered. It trusts in his sovereignty and it shows off the God who is in control. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. So if you're a Christian here today, have you begun to live your life like this? Is your suffering, is your frustrations, your disappointments, the things that don't go your way, a testimony to God? Or are we as frustrated and angry as the rest of the world? Do our friends see Jesus when things go wrong for us? Frustration, disappointment and suffering will come sooner or later in every human life. If they haven't come to you yet, praise God, they will come. Are we different in how we live? Do our friends see this? Have we got friendships with those who don't know Jesus where they see that depth in us? They do life's ups and downs with us. They say he's, he's quite different. She's quite different. He, he's marching to the beat of a different drum. He's coping with this in a way I've never seen before. And if you're not a Christian here today, do you, do you know of any better ways to cope with failure and suffering and death? Better explanation, a better, better friend to walk through it with than Jesus? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Let me pray and then let's sing in response. Father God, we give you great thanks and praise for the way your word is littered with reality littered with real people in real situations, which may seem foreign to us, Lord, but I'm sure we can apply these to things going on in our lives, Lord. You know each of our hearts, each of our circumstances, each of our situations, Lord, intimately. And you're in control. And we find that hard when things are confusing. We don't understand them, Lord, and we, we don't pretend to understand everything, but we know that you do. So, Lord, help us. If we're in the midst of, of suffering now, if we're in the midst of frustration and disappointment now, Lord, to, to now as we join in song together to sing, to let the, the words of song form and order our thoughts, to conform us to, to singing songs which give you glory and honour. And if, praise God, at this moment in time we're not, Lord, then help us to bank this wonderful truth of your sovereignty and your goodness, ready for when time does come when it's hard. We thank you and praise you that we have a wonderful example in the Lord Jesus. And thank you for seeing that outwork for the apostles, Lord, as well. We praise you and thank you for your word. Amen.